Now, the journey of Lent is we're heading towards Easter and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, if we didn't do Lent, I think Easter would feel a little bit like a speed bump. Like, oh, it's Easter next week, and it still can feel that way. But this intentional time of, of prepping, of anticipating, is really, really important to us. And our Lenten sermon series has been a series on prayer, Jesus prays, and prayer is essential for all people of faith. The New Testament writers considered it one of the most important signs of living faith. So much so uh, that it was just assumed that if you were following Jesus, you, you prayed. You had this prayer life, this, this thing that encompassed your life called prayer. And St. Patrick, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, he was held as a slave. Uh, much of his time was spent shepherding his master's sheep, which meant living outside. And so he would pray. And here's a, a quote from Confessions of St. Patrick by John Skinner. This is St. Patrick. He said, I would pray all the time, right through the day. More and more, the love of God and fear of him grew strong within me. And as my faith grew, so the spirit became more and more active, so that in a single day, I would say as many as 100 prayers, and at night, only slightly less. Although I might be staying in a forest or out on a mountainside, it would be the same. Even before dawn broke, I would be aroused to pray in snow and frost and rain. I would hardly notice any discomfort. And I was never slack, but always full of energy. It is clear to me now that this was due to the fervor of the spirit within me. Isn't that amazing? Like I would be aroused before dawn to pray. Just that mindset of the Lord is, is there, this relationship that we get to have with him. Consider what the apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, if you notice the, the four words there at the beginning, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving, those are all separate words in the New Testament that's, that are used kind of generally for prayer and also types of prayer. And that might seem like a lot, but there's actually even more words than that that the New Testament uses for prayer. And that's because, um, you know, we think of prayer as it, it's kind of this one-size-fits-all thing even though it's a very, very general umbrella for all sorts of different things. We're going to talk about some of that this morning. As followers of Christ, we have a very rich tradition and history of prayer. And we've received that tradition from God's people Israel. It was passed down to us through countless generations of Christians. It was modeled by Jesus himself. Because if we read between the lines, Jesus prayed a lot. So what can I, as a follower of Jesus, learn about prayer from him? Well, our first lesson in this series was that Jesus prays on the go as people living 
2,000 years after he did in a time and a place that seems to be always on the move, we can learn a lot from him about this whole idea. You know, we're busy. How do we fit this into our lives? And we see in the life of Jesus merging of both lots of activity, also a very regular practice, what I would say a rhythm of prayer. And what I mentioned a few weeks ago when, when we did that sermon was I really doubt that Jesus was trying to squeeze more prayer into an already busy life. The shift that Jesus invites us to make is how can we fit life into and around our prayers? That's the perspective. Lesson two, Jesus prays for us. The technical word for praying for someone is called interceding, speaking to someone on behalf of someone else. This is something that Christ does for us. Where is Jesus? Well, the book of Romans tells us he's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us on our behalf. Lesson three, Phil Manili preached last week, Jesus prays with great authenticity. And Phil used a passage from the, um, a parable that Jesus told or a story that he told about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And you know, the Pharisees, we see them as kind of the villains of Jesus's story. That's not how the people of Jesus's day would have seen them. They were kind of the heroes. They were very patriotic. They were very godly. People looked up to them. They were upstanding citizens. And then there were the tax collectors, and nobody liked tax collectors. They were sellouts. Uh, they, they were unethical, unethical, like a uh, huge dichotomy in society between a Pharisee and a tax collector. And yet, when they pray, Jesus tells this story that the Pharisee, his prayer is described as very self-assured. You know, he basically says, God, you know, thank you for not making me like everybody else, Right? And then there's a tax collector who won't even look up at God and just says, Lord, you know, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus is elevating this. Hey, what's your attitude in prayer? Is it authentic? Is it humble? Because those are the prayers God wants to hear. The other stuff is just you looking spiritual. And now this week, our, our fourth lesson really in this series is that Jesus prays for harvest. Jesus prays for harvest. And I want to start by reading a passage from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And this is Jesus sending followers out in pairs ahead of him to prepare the way. And I want you to listen to the clear instructions given for this task. Let me begin. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead, two by two, to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God 
has come near to you. So as you digest that, and you think of these instructions from Jesus to his followers, what about those instructions draw you in? And conversely, what feels difficult or challenging? Take 10 seconds and tell Jesus about this. What's drawing you in? What's challenging you this morning? You know, a few weeks ago, I introduced the concept of pilgrimage as we journey through this season of Lent. And being on a literal pilgrimage has long history in Christianity, uh, even to the point where Jesus journeyed every year to Jerusalem. I mean, the God's people, Israel, had like a thousand-year run of this practice of every Passover. They would go up and celebrate in Jerusalem and then back home. That's what good Jewish people did. On one of those trips, we learn in Luke chapter 2 that adolescent Jesus, or maybe it was preteen Jesus, uh, he stayed behind where, you know, these were big groups like extended families. And so you can imagine if you've ever been on a, a, you know, a camping trip, even with a lot of friends and, you know, the kids, the adults are sitting around the campfire and the kids are doing God knows what, just as long as nobody dies over there. Right. And so this huge caravan of people, they head back to Nazareth and it's a couple days before they realize Jesus is gone. And you think what terrible parenting you're like, no, this is just a big, you know, did you see Jesus today? Mary says to Joseph and Joseph's like, No, but I'm sure he's just with all the kids, you know? And on day two, they're like, did you see Jesus today? We better go back to Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem. Writer Peter Gregg comments, it's hard to think of a better definition of pilgrimage than this, a costly journey to a significant location searching for Jesus. And so in our passage today, this is known as the sending of the 72, Jesus is once again journeying towards Jerusalem. If we back up 10 verses to Luke 9, 51, we read, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And at this point in the journey, they were heading to a Samaritan village that didn't welcome them. So they went to another. You can start to see the context for that comment about, you know, knock the dust off your sandals and go to the next place. Oh, they didn't welcome us. We'll go to the next village. But the context overall is going somewhere with Jesus. That's what disciples do. We go somewhere with Jesus. It's really easy to see the metaphor. Being on the journey with Jesus becomes a lifelong task for those who follow. Or another way of looking at it, maybe it's the cost of following. Luke 9, 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. From this passage, this lead up to where we are this morning, we hear Jesus saying a couple of things. The first is that you might experience worldly discomfort if you decide to follow Jesus. But the world is not our home. 
Two, the kingdom of God isn't something that we just wait around for. It's calling all of us now. And while we journey with Jesus, there's always going to be major milestones along the way. But our own awareness, our own feelings about where we are on that journey affects our faith and especially affects our prayers. As Phil commented last week, the Pharisee who basically prays, you know, thank goodness I know you and serve you and love you and I'm better than all these other people. He didn't quite say it like that, but it was, it was pretty bad. That's a prayer of someone who thinks they've already arrived. What happens to your soul, to my soul? What happens to our relationship with God when we feel like we've already arrived? You know, we kind of have it figured out. We know all the right answers. What happens is that you start to fossilize at that moment. You stop being curious. You stop learning. You stop interacting with God's incredible world. You get set in your ways. What happens when you feel like you've arrived in your relationship with God is you, you start to feel accomplished. You know, look at me. I'm such a good follower of Christ. Uh, pride and arrogance grows. And then the soul-killing thing called, called judgment, right? When you look at others and you judge them for their lack of progress, that starts to set in. Those are things we want to avoid as followers of Christ. We haven't arrived. We're still on the go, on the move, on the journey with Jesus our whole entire lifespan. And so here's the 72 disciples that Jesus sends. This means that he won't be at their immediate side. They're kind of headed out on their own mission. They've got their instructions for the journey ahead. And he says, go get things ready for me before I get there. Prepare the way. And then in verse 2, Jesus says this. He says, the harvest is plentiful. This is Luke 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out the workers into his harvest field. And so now you know that the message or the title for this message, uh, which was Jesus prays for harvest, is incomplete, right? He's not praying for the harvest. He's praying for harvest workers, He's praying for harvest workers. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? The issue isn't that we're asking God to, you know, grow the size of the harvest. <clears throat> the harvest is plain to see. It's the number of workers that concerns Jesus. I mean, who, who could possibly, I mean, who could that be, right? These workers, where, where are they? Everyone loves harvesting, at least they should. Harvesting marks the culmination of an entire season of, of hope and hard work. I'm thinking of my own gardening efforts here. And one of my absolute favorite memories as a kid uh, growing up on a farm in Iowa is getting to ride in the combine. And a combine is also known as a harvester. And to be clear, my family wasn't one of those families that drove around in big green tractors. Ours Ours were red, <clears throat> like that. 
and so this is not the exact, this is a much newer version of a combine that farmers would use. And you can change the thing on the front to, to do different crops. It's kind of how it works. And you know, one of those things costs like as much as one of our houses. You know, half a million to a million dollars, depending on how large it is. And so the next picture, I would say, you, my uncle owned the combine, and so he would often drive it. And all, at least all combines that I've seen, they have the little jump seat on the side. And the bad news about that, if you have to sit there, see, that, the main seat is an air ride seat. And so as you're going, you know, they're just kind of floating along. But the kid sits in the jump seat, and you're, you know, half the time you're airborne. So you always got to, you know, buckle up. But... I would sit in that thing for hours. I mean, there are so, this is a piece of mechanical wizardry if you're into stuff like that. Like, there are so many things going on that you can watch as a kid. Uh, it was fascinating. So if you've ever, you know, had an experience, you're a vegetable gardener, you, you know how satisfying that end of the season is when you're picking ripe tomatoes or you're eating fruit, uh, cucumbers, beans, whatever it might be, and the words of my new favorite TV show, Clarkson's Farm, Jeremy Clarkson, he says, look, I did a thing, right? It's amazing. You plant this stuff in the ground and it grows and then you can eat it. It's incredible. But harvesting isn't just reserved for agriculture. We use it as a metaphor to describe so many different activities, seasons, processes. So what does Jesus mean right here? Well, I think this harvesting imagery reinforces a sense of timing, a sense of urgency. You know, the stuff, the harvest is ready now. We got to get out there and bring it in. We don't have enough workers. The, the thing that we've been waiting for God to do, the time, the era that we've been waiting for him to, to bring about is now here. But guess what? There's not enough workers to get it all done. So, Jesus tells us to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his harvest field. I just, I just wonder, who? Who could that possibly be? Well, you know, this asking. Um, asking is prayer, or, or maybe a better way to say it is an aspect of prayer. Asking is not the only kind of prayer. I know if you went out on the sidewalks of North Bend, you know, the mean streets of North Bend, um, and you asked people what prayer was, I, I bet nine or 10 out of 10 times they would, their defini the definition would be something about, well, you're asking God, you're making requests of God for something. That's kind of what we associate with prayer. And asking God has other names like supplication, petition, and intercession. They all have kind of their own little flavor or angle on that. And I spent considerable time this week researching different Greek words for prayer, and now you are going to suffer for that research, right? <laughs> but it's like Alice in Wonderland. I, I found this um, theological dictionary, and under prayer, so prayer is under the heading of prayer, ask, uh, kneel, Beg, worship, and knock. Because all of those six words 
are behind a lot of the New Testament's talk, and there's derivatives. I mean, there's like different endings, lots of stuff. But those are all behind the New Testament's like verses and ideas about prayer. And sometimes they talk, it's, it's talking about an attitude that you might have. Sometimes it's a practice that you do. Uh, other times it's a posture, kneel and knock to, for specifically. Uh, in the New Testament, the most comprehensive, all-encompassing, most common used term for prayer is this word called prosukomai. And it's related to the term for worshiping, which also means to prostrate yourself before another person. That's a good image, isn't it? But prosukomai, most basic image is to kiss. So think about that in prayer, maybe not the kissing part. But think about that as an image that you're laying down uh, before someone that you love. That's an act of worship. Uh, there's an, another word, ganupateo. It literally means to kneel. Why do we often associate prayer and kneeling? This is why. Because you kneel down before someone who's greater than you. And so as, you know, the tradition of prayer developed from ancient Israel on through the New Testament, uh, I mean, we see the Garden of Gethsemane. I think we have this verse, Luke twenty-two forty-one. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw away from them, knelt down, that's the word, and prayed. So it almost becomes synonymous. It's this posture that people have before God. And the word from Luke 10 that started this whole Alice in Wonderland dive Ask, the Lord of the harvest, is deomai. It means to ask with urgency about something specific that you have in mind. Sometimes we render this word plead, beseech, implore. And even though most modern English translations say ask or pray, it kind of misses the punch that this has. There's an urgency behind this. We're pleading with the Lord of the hardest. We're imploring the Lord of the hardest. We're begging the Lord of the hardest. Ask the Lord. Surprisingly, that's not the only word the New Testament uses to describe asking. The most common, by far, hands down, is this word called aiteo, which has a forceful, demanding tone. And then there's the words that talk about crying or shouting for help. That's asking. And then there's the word that Jesus uh, uses very commonly. It's called erotao, which involves a conversational tone with someone. There's a very close relationship that's evident between people when this word is used in that context. And so when it comes to Jesus and his own prayer life, there's something very, very striking. It's that his requests and his prayers never use the word group from Ateo, which is this forceful request or demand. Jesus' prayers always use the words Erateo and Deomai. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father. That's that like conversational, like these, this is really a close, intimate, personal relationship. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever. It's the Holy Spirit. So I'm not trying to use, lose you in a flurry of foreign words here. I want you to see there's incredible nuance that we miss 
when we read in our English Bibles, ask or pray. And that how we're asking is probably as important as what we're asking. You know, can my relationship with God grow to the point where making these requests can feel more like a conversation with God as opposed to a negotiation? You know, think about in your mind's eye, when you're, when you're asking the Lord for whatever, where are you? Are you kind of sitting at the negotiating table, making demands, formal requests? Or are you driving in the car, sitting next to the fire? Are you on a hike? Where are you? Could our relationship with God grow to the point where um, it has this intimacy, where we're not just saying, God, do this, or God, give me that? I mean, there might be urgency. There might be specific things that we're talking about, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a demand. You know what I mean? Um, when I was probably 25, I was attending seminary. I was sitting, I know I've shared this story before, but I don't know how long ago. I was sitting in my living room one night, and the way I remember it is I was there doing homework while like all my roommates were gone uh, having fun. I can't remember if that's actually what was happening, but that's kind of how I remember it. And I didn't, I mean, it was like three months into me starting graduate school, and I didn't want to be there. I didn't have any friends. I'd moved from a place that I liked. I had a job that I liked, but I'd clearly heard the voice of God, not one year, but two years in a row, actually, uh, like, go to seminary. So I, I did. I went to seminary. Now I'm taking all these classes. I'm lonely, frustrated, working all the time. And so I'm stewing on my couch, kind of like, God, why am I here? And I distinctly, this, I distinctly heard the Lord say, and I can't say there was many times in my life where it came out this clear. And God said something like this. He's like, why don't you just say it? Say what? All that stuff you're thinking, why don't you just say it? And so I physically turned around on my couch, kneeled down. I hardly ever do that. But I figured... I was about to say some very irreverent things, and I better, you know, the lightning is going to strike, so. <laughs> and I let God have it, and I didn't use nice words. And as it was coming out, it was replaced by this, like, tangible sense of peace, which I didn't understand. And I wasn't telling God, I hate you, and I don't ever want anything. I, I was just like, my unspoken prayer was, God, you got to help me through this. And the most amazing thing happened. Nothing. <laughs> My life didn't change. Like, from the outside looking in, nothing changed. It all stayed the same. I was still going to class. I was working part-time. I you know, was trying to make friends. But something changed inside of me. In that sense of peace, like, God asked me to come here, and he's with me, and he is right. Like that conversational tone, something changed in my relationship with God after that night. And so as we go to prayer and start to pray like this week, what are you going to do? Maybe you're going to try a different posture. You're going to kneel down. You're going to lay down. 
Uh, maybe you're going to spend a moment in worship, adoring God, thanking him. Maybe when you make a request, you're not thinking of sitting out there, you're negotiating this deal with God. It's a very conversational um, interaction. How's it going to be for you? Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his field. I want to wrap up our time just kind of talking about that because it's huge. You know, over the centuries, Christians have taken this passage <clears throat> very literally. Uh, you think of the Methodist circuit riders in the United States back in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, there's people who, you know, God has sent me. <clears throat> and whenever I think of like, oh, who's, who's being sent? You know, the workers are few. God's got to send. I always think of missionaries. And I usually think of other people, praise the Lord, right? God, you've got to send someone to go do something over there, right? And I'm saying that as a pastor. I tried to dodge that bullet for a really, no, 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 please, Lord, don't send me, you know, like, this and that. But whenever we think of God sending workers, at least maybe I'm wrong, but we think of this professional sense, you know, like someone's working for a nonprofit and they're going... It's always over there somewhere, right? Over salt water. Uh, or, or they're missionaries or they're pastors. or they're, those, those are the workers that God's supposed to be sending. I'm not so sure about that. If you look at the phrase that Jesus used, the word for, the word here is op, like apostle. Apostle means sent ones. Who are the sent ones? We're asking God to send out the workers. And God, send out the worker as long as that worker isn't me. A few months ago, George England actually was sharing this story about how there was a time in his life where he was really frustrated with what was happening at church. I mean, there's never enough small groups. There's never enough small group leaders. Why aren't there more? volunteers in the nursery? Doesn't anybody hear about the need in the tech booth? Uh, why does the landscaping look so overgrown? Doesn't anyone get together following, you know, get together for lunch following church? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Isn't someone going to do something? And George says there was a moment, which was probably both glorious and terrifying, I would imagine, where it felt like God whispered to him, that someone is you. That's you. I've, you see these things and these gaps and these, because you're the, my spirit is sending, sending you. And I doubt that Jesus has our modern idea of pastors, missionaries, paid workers in mind when he tells this parable. He says, I'm sending you. And one of my biggest epiphanies coming out of the pandemic aligns with this whole idea. What does it mean to be a member of God's people, a.k.a. the church? The church are God's people. You don't just go to church. You are the church. And that my role as your pastor is to help you be the church. Well, the first step for every single one of us is just realizing we're sent by God. We're sent ones. And last week, Pastor Angela sent out a, a, a letter to parents of high school youth. And 
the whole letter is about a shift happening in our high school ministry, and I'm frankly kind of excited for it. And you need to know that this message on this passage was decided at least six weeks ago. And I had no idea that Angela was going to send out this letter that she sent this week, but it kind of gives me the chills. So the shift that's happening is that, you know, our current model of ministry, at least for high school, are these recurring weekly Monday night events. And after the, you know, we want all of our kids, all of our volunteers to show up here at church, at the building. And following the pandemic, participation in middle school events or middle school night, that's rebounded nicely. But the high school participation hasn't. There's a whole bunch of factors affecting more than just us that's driving this. And so what do you do? Well, rather than just keep doing the same thing that doesn't appear to be working over and over again, we're going to switch things up. And here's the switch. Instead of hosting events at church that we want students to come to, we, or our youth volunteers, are going to attend student events. Do you see the switch? Do you see how that sounds kind of oddly biblical? We're the sent ones. And if we need to go meet kids on their turf and meet them doing what they're doing, then we will. And we'll still have like, you know, monthly events or something to try and gather everybody so that they can see one another. But we're going to switch it up for a while and see what happens. You know, um, why do we go to church? I think a lot of people are asking that. And I'll tell you, we come to church because this is the Lord's day. And when we cease our activities, our regular weekly activities, and say, you don't own me. I belong to God. And I'm going to go meet my people in a place where together we can worship him. Together we can hear stories about what God's doing in their life and feel encouraged and lifted up. Uh, you know, we're, we're on mission together. Gathering in a spot like this is hugely important. I would never, ever want to say that it's not. But the mindset that I'm talking about is that I... I go somewhere at an appointed time to this thing that happens, and that's church. You are the church. And wherever you go, the Holy Spirit and Christ goes with you. You are the sent ones, doing significant things in your families and neighborhoods and schools, and places of work. You don't have to bring people to church. You can bring church to them. And so this whole idea of somebody should do something, well, maybe that somebody is you. And you have the power of the Lord Almighty living inside of you to help make that happen. So as we go forth this week, 
The challenge is twofold. We're praying for the harvest, praying for harvest workers. But Lord, how do you want to, I don't even know if the right word is use me. It's like just be who God has made you to be in the places that you are. And how can we see ourselves in prayer where we really do need to ask for God's help often? Don't stop. But as you're having that interaction, can you start to see it in a different light? About this being, God already knows your heart and mind. He hears your prayer. How can this become a closer relationship, a conversation with him? It's important that we have those. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you and we admit uh, sometimes it's just hard for us to, man, we're, I mean, you just look at any one of our schedules and it feels like there's not a moment to come up for air. We need to change our mindset. Maybe even say no to some things, but develop rhythms and habits of connecting with you. And not just making a pit stop every now and then for church or a Bible study or whatever it might be. Help us, Lord, to live as your sent ones, wherever you might send us. And there might be someone here now where that sending is uh, a place far, far away or a calling, a new vocation. Lord, if that's the case, we pray that we would surrender. But we're sent to our neighborhoods, to our offices. We're sent everywhere by you, God. Help us to embrace that calling. Use us. And as we pray, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to walk and journey with you each and every day. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.